Good morning and welcome to episode 1437 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast from Fangraphs, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hi. You guys didn't mention that the Mike Miner thing created a minimum inning? Uh, yeah, I did briefly mention that at the end of the episode. I didn't really want to acknowledge it, but I did. Yeah. It also, uh, Miner, ha- I- I'm a little bit relieved of this. Uh, Miner ended up with 126 pitches in that game, mm-hmm. and uh, not counting no hitters, the most in a game this year was 127. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I tend to look at the most pitches thrown in a start from time to time over the years. Uh, it's a useful yardstick for measuring where the limits are of managers' leashes as you know the era changes. And I'm relieved that. It's not a sort of a completely anomalous start that is going to be at the top of the pitch count leaderboard this year. If it had gotten to 128, it would have been really disruptive for me some some years down the road. Uh, <laughs> so those are the two the two things about that start that mattered to me. I have something very very small and specific that only I will care about, but I'm going to put you through it if you don't mind. It has to do okay. with Joe Madden, who is no longer sure. the Cubs manager. So in 2018, I don't know if you remember this, but Matt Carpenter had three homers in a game, and then he uh, he left after, I think, the sixth inning. And so he did not chase four. He did not chase five, even though he might have had a chance. Right. He said he didn't know that. That's right. He did say. Well, he, he kind of said he didn't know, and he kind of also said in the same breath that it wouldn't have counted because position pitchers were coming into pitch. But anyway, that's not really the point. He had three homers and two doubles in a game. And after the game, Joe Madden said, quote, he's always been good, but right now he's probably at the top of his game. You know, bully for him. And so that phrase, bully for him, I was trying to figure out at the time what he meant when he said bully for him. I have always thought of bully for him as being something that you say kind of sarcastically or sort of dismissively. It's not a thing that you naturally praise someone with. Uh, And I looked up a bunch of like kind of online grammar types to see what they thought the phrase bully for him meant. And uh, it originally just meant genuinely an excellent or splendid thing used to express approval bully for you but it in more recent years in the modern years has used been used more often sarcastically not used to praise someone sincerely quote a person might use this if he or she thinks that someone's story is boring or not very good and i thought wow is joe is joe madden like uh is he mad at Matt Carpenter for something? And so I uh, I looked up that phrase and Joe Madden, and I found that Joe Madden uses that phrase a lot, kind of every year, pretty much. I, I found that he used it six times in 2017, no, seven <laughs> times in 2017, sometimes to describe opponents, sometimes to describe his, his own team. He used it when David Ross went on Dancing with the Stars. Joe Madden said, I couldn't be more proud of him. I think it's awesome. Bully for him. He's doing great. So he clearly uses it in the sincere usage. He used it in 2016 uh, to describe Araldus Chapman. He used it in 2015 for something that Lucas Duda had done. Uh, he used it actually five times in 2015. 
He used it twice in 2014 uh, about the Orioles rotation, which was was quite bad. But uh, <laughs> he was trying to, I think, praise them for getting by with it. And also for Derek Jeter, for Derek Jeter's final hit as a Yankee. He used it in 2013 for James Loney. He did not use it in 2012 or 2011, but he did use it twice in 2010 once in 29, once in 2008, and twice in 2006 for uh, Jeff Francoeur, I think getting his first stolen base of the year maybe, (laughs) and for Edwin Jackson maybe earning, he was competing for a spot in the rotation, and he was trying to earn one in the spring, and Joe Madden said, bully for him. And so it's not just that Joe Madden uses the term a lot, but like nobody else uses it. It is not a term that is in use very much. Bruce Bochy, who just retired, never used the phrase. Mike Sosha never used the phrase in his managerial career. Buck Showalter, never. Bud Black, never. Bob Melvin, never. Terry Collins, never. It is not a common phrase. So I was waiting to see whether he would use it this year in 2019. It was one of my stories for 2019. Will Joe Madden say (laughs) bully for him? And uh, now that the season is over, I can tell you that he did. He used it twice he said, uh, when you Darvish got in a feud with a writer over his pitch selection, Joe Madden said, from my understanding, his facts were more accurate than the others were. So bully for you. And then also for David Bodie, who was, I guess, trying to get more playing time at third base. And Joe Madden said, what David is doing, bully for David. So uh, <laughs> so he did end his Cubs career with a couple of bullies for. Uh-huh. Okay, well, maybe that's reflective of his age. I don't know if he's old enough to say bully for him sincerely or whether it's still kind of anachronistic for him to say that. But right. it's like a Teddy Roosevelt era expression, but perhaps he will go to the Padres. They need a manager now, and we'll hear him say it next season. It'll be bully for Fernando Tatis, or maybe he'll go to the Angels, who also need a manager after dismissing Brad Osmus, and then it'll be bully for Mike Trout. Yes, could be. I have one more thing since you brought up the Mike Miner episode. There is a a historical comp that came to my attention. This is from my pal at The Ringer, Zach Cram, who had his memory jogged when he was listening to me and Meg talk about Miner because he remembered an extremely old story that was sort of along the same lines, an example of a player requesting that a pop-up be dropped so that he could pursue personal gain of some sort. And this is from a book called My Greatest Day in Baseball, which I think is sort of an oral history book. And this is a story that Dizzy Dean is telling. So I'm quoting Dizzy Dean here, as told to by Dizzy Dean. And he says, I'll tell you another day in Boston, I got a hell of a kick. Remember seeing a big fat guy around with me a lot? Well, he was Johnny Perkins, and he worked in a nightclub around St. Louis, and he made this trip with us. He made me a bet I wouldn't strike out Vince DiMaggio the first time he came up. I did, and when I went back to the bench, I made motions to Perk I'd double the bet the next time. I struck him out again, and I put everything back on a third bet, and I fanned him three straight times. Then Perkins wanted to make it all or nothing. So I took him, and when DeMag came up again, he lifted a pop foul back of the plate. I thought Ogrodowski, that's Bruce Ogrodowski, the catcher, was going to catch it, and I ran and hollered, let it go, let it go. He couldn't get the ball anyway, as it turned out, because it hit the screen, but I'd have bumped him sure as hell if he'd have got under it. I wanted to win that bet. I struck DiMaggio out next pitch four straight times. And Dizzy Dean, of course, colorful character, maybe given to exaggeration, but Zach did the tracer. He fact-checked this, and 
turns out that this probably did actually happen. There was a day when Dizzy Dean struck out Vince DiMaggio four times with catcher Bruce Okradowski behind the plate, May 5th, 1937. So can't confirm the other details, but evidently Dean was going for that fourth strikeout and he did not want the pop foul. Another thing that's kind of interesting is that Dizzy Dean's career high in single season strikeouts 199. So he was just passed by Mike Miner with his 200th. Of course, Dizzy Dean, I believe, led the majors in strikeouts four straight years, but those were the years when you could do that and not top 199. Wow, that is way shadier. <laughs> well, there was a bet involved. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that kind of is a little unsavory, I guess. I don't uh, know if that, that doesn't count as betting on baseball if it's just... Uh, doesn't it? Well, if it's <laughs> it's just some guy, but some guy who worked in a nightclub and he just hangs, <laughs> hangs around with Dizzy Dean. So wait, uh, <laughs> you can bet on baseball as, as long as it's with a guy who works in a nightclub? <laughs> I don't know. Can you Nightclub do, like, exemption personal player prop bets where you just say i'm gonna strike this guy out and you're betting on yourself i mean pete rose supposedly said he only bet on the reds and that didn't save him you're still not allowed to do that so i don't know this is not like an official bet like placed with a bookie on the outcome of a game or something it's just a personal thing but i don't know yeah a little shady Okay, uh, that I'm going to use this to bring up a question that I, I thought of while you and Meg were talking, uh, not in the last episode, but in the email episode that Meg was here for. But before I get to that, the Cardinals won that game 13-1. to 1. Uh, The strikeout was in the ninth inning. And so there was uh, very, very, very little effect on the ball game at that point. But I'm more impressed almost by the scouting acumen that Dizzy Dean showed in this. Vince DiMaggio was like one of the strikeout guys of his era. He led Uh the league in strikeouts six times, including that year. But that was his rookie year. That was his first year. And so Mm -hmm. at that point, he had played like a dozen games in his career. And yet something, uh, that was his 14th game. And Dizzy Dean had only seen him for one game at that point, the previous mm-hmm. day. And so that is pretty impressive that he saw in Vince DiMaggio an easy mark with so little data. Yeah, that's true. So you and Meg talked about calling home runs, pre- predicting home runs, promising home runs, promising mm-hmm. home runs to sick children, um, and whether you would do it if you were a ball player. Yeah. It being such a difficult thing to pull off, setting yourself up for such difficulty. Uh, but what if you were, say, you were Aaron Judge? And you were meeting with a um, a uh, unfortunate child before the game, and, and that child said, "Aaron Judge, you are playing my favorite pitcher today. He's my favorite pitcher. All I want is to see him strike you out. Can you promise me that you'll strike out against my favorite team's pitcher today? Would you make that promise?" <laughs> So I'm promising that I will not succeed. I will go up there and strike out. I guess the odds are probably pretty good that that Aaron Judge is going to strike out given four plate appearances, or I guess only maybe two or three against that particular pitcher, if that matters. But (laughs) I don't know if I'd want to promise that I would fail. I mean, on the one hand, right, unlike with the home run, the the odds are are pretty good that you will succeed with with just just on on the numbers. Like Aaron Judge probably in three plate appearances is more likely than not to strike out once, I think. Mm -hmm. 
And so you you could do it and you could be the hero to the kid without changing anything. And then if you if you fail the first, say, two times that you face the pitcher by by putting the ball in play, maybe even by homering. Well, the, then it's totally under your control. Unlike with the home run, where it's hard to try harder. With a strikeout, you could definitely do it if you wanted to, particularly if it was 13 to 1 and you were playing, uh, you know, Dizzy Dean. Easy to do, but you might end up in a situation where then you really don't want to strike out. It, it might be late later in the game, and, and now suddenly you don't have a strikeout to give. And so you'd, you would then, in that case, unlike with the home run, you would be specifically trying to thwart the child's dreams right <laughs> yeah you would be going up there wholeheartedly attempting to disappoint a child yes. uh, and so you set yourself up for that and so i think that playing the odds if you combine the well i'll probably do this without even trying with the maybe it'll be six to one and i'll be able to do it semi-willingly to make him happy then the odds are pretty good that you'd make the child happy but you would set up a real moral dilemma toward the end. I think I would promise to strike out for the child. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you put the, the child's happiness before your own success, perhaps. It's selfless. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Would it bother you if you... Stri- I mean, if you strike out 200 times a year, would it bother you if there was one that was... that somebody was really... like your failure was making somebody else really happy would it be better or worse that your failure i guess that's what i'm asking would it be better or worse that someone was taking so much happiness and someone who who you in this scenario that you value their happiness it seems like in a way it would be harder for their happiness to be at your expense i could see that really hurting your feelings (laughs) Well, opposing fans are happy every time a player fails. It's so. true. And if you <laughs> promise a home run to a player, uh, to yeah. a kid, and then you hit a home run, then then you're basically saying that the pitcher's failure, you're transferring that poor child's scorn just mm-hmm. to another player. You're essentially setting up another player to be the, the villain in a sick child's story. Yes. Which then that's sort of sad. Like no one ever talks about the pitchers who allowed home runs to Babe Ruth when he had promised it to... I mean, those pitchers were actively trying to go against a sick child's wishes, which makes them villains, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, in a way. From it's a not fair to that. View. I don't think it's fair to the pitcher to do that. I think the, I think your anything you promise should probably be it should be like I will run a three point nine to first base, something where there is nobody else involved. It is simply a, a pact between you and the, the the kid, and you are not bringing anybody else into it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, people probably didn't come to hear us talk about Dizzy Dean and sick children. They probably want to hear us talk about the playoffs. So do we have any final notes on the regular season? Anything that happened this weekend? Obviously, we had more than one managerial dismissal as the Cubs and Joe Madden parted ways. The Pirates let go of Clint Hurdle. The Angels fired Brad Osmus after only one year, possibly to make way for Madden, much like the Cubs fired Renteria to hire Madden years ago. Rumors are swirling around other managers, kind of a lot of turnover there. And actually, if you look at the NL managers, assuming Craig Council holds on to his job, which I suppose seems likely given how the Brewers finish the season, he will be the longest tenured manager in the National League next season. And wow. he, he's only been around for four years or so. So there's been a lot of managerial turnover, but we talked about some of that recently. And 
I don't know what else. Tim Anderson won a batting title with 15 walks, which had never been done. That's kind of cool. Happy for Tim Anderson. Pete Alonso broke the rookie home run record, which every home run record was broken this year, but still kind of cool and fun to watch. And the Cardinals and Brewers made it interesting right up until the last day of the season. But ultimately, the Cardinals took the central, and now we have the playoff field. We know the matchups, at least for the wildcard games and a couple of the division series. So I guess we can just do some playoff preview unless you want to talk about anything else first. Well, before we get to the playoffs, let's uh, just put a bow on the regular season. I'm curious to know your opinion. Was this a good pennant race a good playoff race throughout the year i would say below average probably it's hard to calibrate because i always feel like you remember the best ones and you mentally compare the current one against the best ones but of course the average one is not actually that good this one did have a meaningful game on the last day of the season and there were what two meaningful races up until a couple days before the end of the season. So there was some intrigue there, but you also had a few divisions that were sewn up very early on. So my sense was that it was not a remarkable pennant race, at least, let's say. Yeah, the downsides of it were that there were really no good... There there were four divisions that were essentially locked up very early. One that Ended up getting close again, but was was also quite often lopsided in the AL Central, and only one division race that was good throughout the summer. So that's one downside. Another downside is that you know you just have all these teams that are out of it by May and are essentially playing for nothing for five five months. And and the third thing was that the last week was just a you know for the most part a total dud, and the last weekend was for the most part a total dud. So those are all the bad things about it. I wrote a piece at ESPN arguing that that there was that it was also good that that those are all bad things, but that it was also good. And the way that I considered this issue was I looked at how sort of how volatile the playoff odds were uh-huh. and the playoff odds because of the the wild cards in both leagues really were extremely volatile. So if you look at a measure of volatility, which well, is only one measure, it's maybe not the most specific or direct, but one measure is how often a team goes from likely to make the playoffs to unlikely to make the playoffs or vice versa. And so if you go from 40% to 60%, then you have just switched from being a underdog to a favorite or vice versa. And so I call that a lead change. And there were, if you go along with the terminology of that as a lead change, there were more lead changes this year than there had been in any year that Fangraph's playoff odds have, which goes back to 2014. So there were 101 lead changes, and that's the most. In some years, it's as low as you know 40 or 50. The most that there had previously been in the in the past five years had been uh, 95. And so the teams that were in it, there were about a dozen teams that were fluctuating between in it and not in it at various points and they moved around a lot there was a lot of there were a lot of streaks that changed the playoff odds uh, dramatically there were a lot of weekends that changed the playoff odds dramatically um and so i i, I don't know if you have an awards ballot this year i had the nl manager of the year and i got to thinking about this with my vote because you know at the end of the year you know you you for the most part you're pretty much you're looking at the teams that 
that made the playoffs, but you could make a case at various points in the season for a large number of of candidates for that. So for instance, the, I mean, Joe Madden is obviously not going to be the manager of the year, but like the Cubs playoff odds were all over the place throughout the year at various points early on, they were in the thirties and then they got really hot. They got up to the eighties. And when they were at the eighties, you could have made the case that the Cubs were the big success of the year. There were articles being written about how they had proven Pakoda wrong and how, you know, Joe Madden was getting so much out of these the, you know, his his veteran pitching staff, and they were all overperforming at the time. So uh, so the Cubs were both in it and out of it throughout the year. The, the Phillies were at various points in the year in first place. They had playoff spots uh, as late as the last day of July, maybe even later. But on the last day of July, the Phillies had a playoff spot. And you could have made the case at that point that, Joe, uh, that Gabe Kapler was a manager of the year candidate. And of course, Phillies ended up at 500. They were a, a big failure, but at various points in the year, they were not a big failure. So there was a lot of volatility for them. The Padres had a playoff spot on the last day of May. The mm-hmm. Rockies had a playoff spot on the last day of June. The Diamondbacks, of course, got were down in the low single digits. They ended up in, they had a playoff spot at various points in the season as well. The uh, Mets went from 4% in late July to 53% in early August with a 15-1 and one run. And in early August, you might have made the case that Mickey Calloway was your manager of the year uh, <laughs> candidate. I mean, it, it yeah. made sense at the time, and that's how fast <laughs> things turned around. I mean, I, I think that's what I'm saying, is that things turned around so fast mm-hmm. uh, at various points in the year. The Giants went from 0.1% playoff odds to getting within two games of a playoff spot around the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. 0.1, like not many teams come back from 0.1 to be relevant. Uh, and they they did they got relevant yeah and then with the playoff teams themselves you had a ton of volatility ton of fluctuation the nationals who made the playoffs were as low as 22 percent they went 74 and 38 after that to get a spot the cardinals got as low as 18 percent in early july they were under 500 in early july and then they went 46 and 27 and got a playoff spot the braves were as low as 23 percent they were at 30% in mid-May, they were 18 and 20 on that date, under 500, and they went 79 and 45 after that. And of course, the Brewers were as low as 5% in September, and then went 18 and 5 to close it out and got the playoff spot. So, and there was some of that going on in the American League as well. With the A's were as low as 5%. The Rangers, of course, were in the in the middle of the summer had a playoff spot, mm-hmm. and so and the Red Sox as well were up and down. The Rays were at sometimes down. Cleveland was was very low and also very high at various points. So in the sense that there were I, I the way that I th- sort of thought about it is that for a lot of teams this year, this was if you were a fan of the team, this was not a very interesting year. Your team was either way out of it or way ahead for most of the year. Uh, that that describes a lot of fan bases. But if you were just a person with MLB TV and you wanted to see meaningful games on any given day. Uh, there were a lot of them um, for most of the year. There were a lot of good games that you could watch at any given time of the day uh, because so many teams were were in it and um, because the the standings were getting shuffled 
uh, so dramatically over the course of sometimes just like four or five days in the middle of of June, which you don't normally see. You don't normally see, I don't think, a, a big glut of teams with with nobody way ahead and um, and with so many avenues to potentially get to the playoffs. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, some of that shuffling and jostling I didn't pay close attention to because – for instance, the Rangers were not ever really a threat, even though they were kind of close at, at a certain point or even in a playoff spot at a certain point. And the Giants' very fluky run was fun, but also very fluky. And so neither of those was like, hey, these teams might actually be really good. It did maybe affect their trade deadline plans, for instance, but at no point did I really think, oh, these teams are serious threats and surprise teams. So ultimately, I think the Twins really turned out to be the only surprise team. But you're right that there were a lot of fluctuations with other teams. The Nationals starting the season, whatever it was, 19-31, and and then ending up making the playoffs. And the AL Central reshuffling where the Twins had that huge lead and then Cleveland totally made up that ground and then the Twins took the lead again. And then, of course, all the stuff with the Cardinals and the Cubs and the Brewers in the past couple weeks, that was all pretty thrilling and changed so suddenly. So, yeah, there there was a fair amount there. I, I guess it was better than you would probably assume if I told you that this was the most extreme stratified season, that you had the most teams with either 100 wins or 100 losses. You might think, well, there was no intrigue at all. And there was. There was some intrigue. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way of putting it. Right. So, uh, so the playoff teams. There's ten playoff teams. You yeah. um, during when we were talking about which race, which remaining races were the most interesting. You said, "Well, you were having a hard time getting into the NL Central slash NL Wild Card race because the teams just didn't seem that good." And then the teams got hot and they ended up winning a fair amount of games. And I tried to convince you that maybe they were good. And now that we have ten teams, it really is striking to me, uh, in in my opinion, how much worse the Cardinals and the Brewers appear to be than the rest of them. Mm. So you do seem—I I think you're kind of right. I, I don't—I'm not <laughs> saying neither one can win it all or anything like that, but it is hard to put these Brewers with their run differential of like three. I think yes, three. Uh, <laughs> in the same in the same category as as all the other teams mm-hmm. and then the the cardinals the cardinals do some things nicely they have like for instance they have really good defense and that helps but they also do not seem like a playoff team in the same way that a lot of the other teams seem like playoff games so do you see an avenue for i mean besides the the fact that the you know anything can happen do you really see an avenue for the brewers for instance to make it to a parade well, I think their World Series odds are about 1% right now on fan graphs, which seems low given just anything can happen in October. But I think they are clearly in a class of their own. I don't even know if I would put the Cardinals and the Brewers in the same class because with the Cardinals, I think you could say there's not a huge difference between, say, the Cardinals and the Braves, for instance, in terms of run differential or underlying performance. I don't know that those teams are so dramatically different. And the Cardinals had a very successful second half and kind of turned their season around. So I don't know that they are so much worse than the other teams, but the Brewers... I think the Brewers are a great story, obviously, because they went 
20 and 7 in September and I think 14 and 5 without Yelich and they made up this ground. They were long shots before Yelich went down and then people sort of wrote him off and then they went on an incredible run and it helped that they had an extremely soft schedule over the past few weeks. They couldn't have done it otherwise, but they had a regular schedule over the full season. So that probably just means that they had a harder schedule leading up to that point. So I think they're a great story. And if you're the kind of person who roots for randomness and underdogs, then the Brewers should really be your pick because they kind of came out of nowhere and they barely outscored their opponents. So I wrote about that a little actually at The Ringer because I was writing about the Astros and the Dodgers and do you want to root for the best teams to make it or do you want to root for just the most unexpected outcome like 2014 when the Giants and the Royals had the lowest World Series odds and then they both ended up in the World Series and the Giants who had the lowest World Series odds won the World Series. So it's kind of a, a matter of personal preference whether you just want chaos or whether you want the regular season to actually tell us something about who wins in the playoffs. So can the Brewers win? Uh, clearly, I think they are a worse team than all the other teams, and they are without Yelich, and they don't have anything that, to me, makes them play up particularly in October. It's hard enough to figure out what that would even be. But it's not like they have three incredible starters and they can just ride those guys or they don't even have necessarily the bullpen that they had last year. So I don't know. You look at the wildcard matchup and it's Max Scherzer versus Brandon Woodruff. And I know that Scherzer hasn't been totally dominant lately, but still it's hard to see why you would favor the Brewers over the Nationals, a team that has home field advantage and can throw Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin at you. That's pretty tough to beat. Yeah, the Nationals are a team that because they're they have a really good offense and they have like an incredible rotation. Uh, and those are the things we tend to think of first when we think of a team. They seem much stronger. I think they are. Yeah. I, I think probably almost everybody's going to pick the Nationals to win the wild card game. And probably a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people will actually pick them to beat the Dodgers. But for the last month or two, it seems like there's been a lot of, well, they're going to be dangerous in October. They're the team you don't want to face kind of a thing. Yeah. But, of course, the Nationals bullpen is not just a liability. It's not just a weakness. They are. They have. I. I. I can't remember if this is in a playoff preview that has already run or a playoff preview that's going to run. But their ERA, their their bullpen ERA, is the fourth worst since 1988. And the other three teams basically average like a hundred and some losses between uh -huh. them. So they are like really, really. I mean, I. I don't. In the way that they have pitched, there's. No, I mean, almost no precedent for a playoff team being this bad at something this important in, yeah. especially in the playoffs. I mean, especially when you're talking about a format where bullpens are going to, by the way, th this year, relievers will probably face more batters than starters in the postseason. Yeah. That has never happened before. It got to yeah. within two batters last year, mm -hmm. uh, but it will probably happen this year. And so, uh, and of course, like that's a huge, huge, huge thing. And if you didn't, I mean, if I just told you, like, t take away all the famous people that were that we love on the Nationals. If I started the conversation by saying that the Nationals had the fourth worst bullpen since 1988, how good would you have to make the rest of the team before you would say in the abstract, oh, yes, they're they're a good playoff team. They're going to be really good. Probably in the abstract, you would probably say even better than they are. Uh-huh. 
And so we might be sleeping on just what a weakness it is. It might be that the Nationals like lead a lot of games through five innings and end up getting swept. Yeah, maybe. Obviously, if you're the Nationals, you don't need the bullpen to pitch more than half of your innings. If you're the Yankees or, or someone like that, you might have the bullpen pitch 60% of your innings or, or even more because they're probably going to do some kind of piggyback starter thing where starters, except for maybe Paxton, will go like three innings or something or Severino perhaps. So proportionally speaking, it maybe matters more if you're a team that doesn't have a great rotation because they have Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin and Anibal Sanchez, who's really good for a four starter. They never have to use any starting pitcher who's not good. And so a lot of those guys are capable of going deeper into games. And so it obviously hurts them, though, that you can't really trust them ever to protect a lead. But it's a little less disqualifying. Like if you told me about that, I'd say, well, they better have Max Scherzer and Patrick Corbin and Steven Strasburg if they have uh, any hope to compete. And turns out that they do. So they are still dangerous, but there are definitely going to be some sweaty late innings for Nationals fans during however long this run is for them. Does it concern you at all that they are, because they don't have this bullpen there, I mean, you you say they won't need the bullpen as much because their starters are so good, but they will also lean on their starters more than maybe they otherwise would. Yeah. Like you would, for instance, the Astros have, you know, roughly as good of a top three mm-hmm. as the Nationals have, you know, comparable. And I don't know when the Astros plan to pull their pitchers, but there's a decent chance that you'll see the the Nationals try to get, you know, an extra two innings out of their starters compared to what the Astros do, which you can say it's great. The Nationals have those starters. It relieves the burden on that terrible bullpen, but you could also say that it reduces the the, the value of those starters a little bit if yeah. they're being used in a way that stretches them a little bit more than optimal strategy would would, would otherwise dictate. Sure. Yeah. As good as those guys are, they will still see their performance degrade third time through the order. So other teams will be more aggressive about pulling their pitchers and the Nationals won't really have that luxury. So it's true. It's definitely an Achilles heel, or at least it's it's what you would pick if you had to pick one for any of these contenders. It, it might be like the worst single thing on any playoff team i mean other than i guess the brewers who are just sort of generally middle of the pack in a lot of stuff but if you had to pick a weakness on any of the leading contenders i suppose you'd probably point to the nationals bullpen over just about anything else well yeah i mean imagine if they had the fourth worst starting rotation (laughs) since 1988 Mm -hmm. that would be the 1995 Twins. Let's let's go to let's go to the sixth worst. All right. So the 2005 Kansas City Royals had the sixth worst starting rotation in baseball uh, since 1988. They had that was the year that Zach Greinke went five and 17 with a 5.8 ERA, uh-huh. and then they had Jose Lima 6.99 ERA, Runelvis Hernandez 5.52 ERA, and DJ Carrasco 4.79 ERA. Would if they had that rotation, but they had the best bullpen in baseball, maybe the best bullpen in 30 years, would we be talking about them as a contender? Well, if you had to pick one that would be a greater advantage in this era where you can ride your relievers so hard, you'd have to say if you either have one of the worst rotations or one of the worst bullpens, I might rather have the really great bullpen than the really great rotation because you can actually throw more of your innings with your relievers at this point. Yeah, exactly. 
And so I both emotionally feel like the Nationals are scary and could be really good. And also, I agree, if I were just designing a team that had a humongous weakness that was inescapable and overwhelming and totally did not fit the format of the postseason in any way, it would be to say that they have a historically bad bullpen. I think one of the things that makes it easier to not just say that's a conversation ender, the Nationals bullpen, is that there is a difference between having had the worst bullpen during the regular season and also getting terrible bullpen pitching for the next month. It is hard for me to imagine a rotation of the 2005 Royals uh, suddenly getting good. And yet it is not that hard for me to imagine the Nationals bullpen having Mm -hmm. a good month. Yeah, the Red Sox did it last year. Yeah, I mean, not nearly to the, they were not nearly the liability that the Nationals relievers have been. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're talking about pitchers who are inherently prone to wild swings, who I'm sure that you could, I, I have not done this. And maybe given how bad the Nationals bullpen, you could not do this. But I'm sure you could find three week stretches for Tanner Rainey and Wander Suero and Fernando Rodney when they were really good this year. And so mm-hmm. if you put the, you only, you know, you only need a few weeks. You can, you can play around with who's hot at the at the time. I mean, Tanner Rainey has like the second highest whiff rate in baseball this year, I think. Maybe I might be excited. It might be third or it might be eighth, but it's very high. I think it's second. And he also ha- has one of the highest walk rates in baseball. And so that's why Tanner Rainey is not considered a effective high leverage reliever. And it is why the Nationals did not have a good bullpen this year. But I mean, you know, it wouldn't surprise anybody if Tanner Rainey came out and had three dominant outings in an LCS series and you started talking about how like, oh, well, now you don't want to get to Tanner Rainey. And, you know, (laughs) like this is a really, 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 really bad bullpen or it has been. Mm -hmm. And I can say with confidence that they were really, really, really bad. And I can say with some confidence that they are probably bad, but not as much confidence, and I'm not going to go so far. And I can't say with that much confidence that over the next three weeks they will be bad. And if I were betting on how much worse they would be than everybody else, uh, it would be like much, much closer to the pack than they were this year overall. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably why it's easy to say, well, let's just wait and see. Yes, on that. Right. And also also the nature of bullpens is that a lot of the players whose stats were the worst and who dragged the team down the most are gone. Uh, Trevor Rosenthal, for instance, is not going to get innings this year. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, if you just if you're if you're doing your postseason rosters, you do notice that the Nationals do not have uh, anybody who you're afraid of in any inning at all Mm -hmm. and uh, even you know even Sean Doolittle who's been one of the best relievers in baseball for a while and who quite possibly will continue to be had you know also had his worst season so yeah that that is to say that the Nationals seem dangerous and also you can completely conjure up the vision of how they get swept yes right so just to sum up the whole playoff field, it is the Brewers and the Nationals in the wild card game. The winner will play the Dodgers. Cardinals and the Braves are set in their own series, as are the Twins and the Yankees. And then the Astros will play the winner of the other wild card game, the Rays and the A's. And that one will be played first. And I'm sort of excited for that one. I'm almost sorry that those two teams are playing each other because I'd kind of like to see them both a little longer than we will get to. But both of those teams are ones that are quite scary, I think, in a single game. 
and also scary in a way that they weren't like a month ago. Both of those teams have changed quite a bit, whether it's guys getting called up or guys coming back from injury. These teams are at full strength or or close to full strength now. So with the A's, like if you had asked me on September 1st, who starts a wild card game for the A's or, or what's the sequence even, what who who pitches in that game? I guess you would have said Liam Hendricks, who actually started the wild card game for them last year somewhat unsuccessfully, but he's still great. But the whole shape of that team's pitching staff has changed because Sean Manaya came back in September. He's been great in five starts, and he seems likely to get the wild card start, although it hasn't been announced as we are speaking. And then you can go with Jesus Lazardo, who's been great, and AJ Puck, who's also been quite good. And you can get through a wildcard game with Manaya, Puck, Lusardo, and Hendricks. I mean, that's a very potent quartet, so I'd be pretty scared facing that team. Plus, Sean Murphy catching them, maybe, another late-season arrival. And Steven Piscotti came back from an ankle injury on the last day of the season. And then you look at the Rays, and they've gotten Snell back. They've gotten Glasnow back. They've gotten Chirinos back. They've gotten Yandy Diaz back. Brandon Lau, another big one. All these guys who they were doing without are now back. And I don't know if all of them are at 100%, but seems like they're prepared to contribute. And they arguably had the best pitching staff in baseball this year. Depends on the stat you look at, but they're not quite as high profile as, say, the Astros or the Dodgers or the Nationals. But they do it with more anonymous guys and mixing and matching and openers and Nick Anderson and people you wouldn't necessarily have paid much attention to coming into the year. Only three guys on that entire staff have started exclusively. Everyone else has done a bit of both, but they are a really dominant pitching staff. So both of these teams, this seems like it should be a a fairly low scoring game, although you never know. So the A's have home field advantage, and these are probably the, the two teams by virtue of maybe their markets and the coverage that they get that are, I don't know if they're underrated, but they're maybe undercovered or the, the casual fan wouldn't be able to name that many players on these teams, but they're really good. I think they are at least as good as the Twins, if not better. And built in an interesting way, too, largely through trades, just kind of an old school money ball swindling other teams, picking up Marcus Semien and Mark Canna and Plasno and Meadows and Bam, etc. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to put the question of whether they're at least as good as the Twins, if not better, aside for a minute while I think about it. But okay. So I agree with all of that, basically. I'm a little bit less... I, I am both excited by the possibility that Lazardo and Puck could be, you know, could just be difference makers and that, yes, they could they could give the A's two incredibly dominant, like really exciting arms in the bullpen. And they've both pitched well. But I, I don't know if I'm... I don't know if I'm convinced by this or not, but... If you look at Lizardo, so Lizardo has been incredible, and he looks incredible. He's fantastic. I hope he pitches four innings every game. However, you know, his his performance this year, he's faced the Rangers twice, the Mariners twice, the Angels once. Those are all in, in the final two weeks. So those are all uh-huh. bad teams, bad offenses with a lot of stars missing. He had one game against a good team, which was against Houston, and he was fine. He threw three innings. He allowed one run. It was it was a good outing. That was his debut, but he only got one swinging strike in those three innings. So it was a different 
it was different. All the, all his other outings were electric and dominant. And then he had this one against Houston, which was not dominant, right? Mm-hmm. And then with Puck, he's faced the Giants, the Royals, the Angels, the Tigers, the Rangers, the Royals, the Rangers, the Mariners. Those teams are all very bad. And then one game against the Yankees and one game against the Astros. And in those outings, again, this is ridiculous, but he faced four batters and only got one of them out. And so I want to see, <laughs> I want to just take it as a given that they're going to be awesome and that, yes, now the A's uh, have depth in their in their pitching staff that they did not have and that uh, all the limitations that they had throughout the years, they were trying to find pitchers who could work are no longer a factor because they've got you know, nine to 11 innings each series that they can just give to these dominant top prospects who throw hard and are awesome. But I, 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 I think that I, there is a little bit of doubt in my mind about whether those will work out for them. On the other hand, they have home field advantage, which matters, and they have a much better offense than the Rays mm-hmm. probably. They have um, offense and offense that is just below the elite three in the American League and that last year was right there was arguably as good as the Yankees and the Astros and most of those players are back and so if you look at the two years they have um, an offense that is very 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 good somewhat somewhat obscured by their home ballpark but they have an elite playoff caliber offense that the Rays don't quite have but yeah the Rays pitching staff holy cow that's good (laughs) i mean they are they had the what the best bullpen era in baseball this year despite allowing you know pitching hundreds more innings than other teams had and now they have on paper a rotation that is really terrifying and fantastic and has three players that you could imagine being cy young caliber any day they start and Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why the Yankees did a really bad job of knocking the Rays out last weekend. They should (laughs) have done it. Yeah. (laughs) Bad idea. Yeah, that's right. Well, I don't know if this is skipping ahead, but since I wrote about it, the Astros and the Dodgers, I think just in the way that we were just talking about the Brewers maybe being in a lower class of team in this playoff field, I think we have to acknowledge that the Astros and the Dodgers are in their own higher class, which you would not necessarily know if you looked at the win totals. Yes, they do have the most wins in baseball, but only by a few over the Twins and the Yankees. There are a lot of teams within, say, 10 wins of them, but they are so much better than all the other teams, I think, which obviously doesn't mean that they're unbeatable. But I just wrote about it, and if you look at their underlying numbers, I mean, if you take Baseball prospectus's third order record at face value. So third order record adjusts for the underlying talent, basically how many runs you should have scored and allowed if you strip out the clutchness and context and all that. And then also accounts for the quality of competition. BP has this going back to 1950, which is more than 1700 teams. The Astros and the Dodgers rank first and third all time, at least going back to 1950. The 2001 Mariners and their 116 wins are the only team that is between them and ahead of the Dodgers. And maybe you think that's too extreme. Maybe you think they couldn't possibly be the best teams on record. But if you look at anything else, if you look at run differential, if you look at base runs record, it's not quite as extreme but there are still very sizable gaps between them and the next best team. I looked at third order record and sorted by the biggest difference that teams have had 
between that top team and the next best team in a league in any year. And even this year, when you have this extreme season where you've got four teams with at least 101 wins, which has never happened before, you've got all these great teams, and the gap between first and second, between the Astros and the next best team in the AL and the Dodgers and the next best team in the NL, also the biggest gaps on record going back to 1950 in third order record or third order winning percentage. So if you believe the underlying numbers, these teams are two of the best teams of all time. And they are kind of in a class of their own, which I don't know if that would shock anyone. Obviously, these teams have been with us for a while. They've been playing at an elite level for a while, which in a way to me, I think is the most impressive part of the fact that they both seem to be peaking now because these teams have the most wins in baseball dating back to 2015. The Dodgers have won seven consecutive division titles. They've won back-to-back pennants. The Astros won a World Series. These two teams faced each other in the World Series in 2017. And it's hard to be that good for that long and keep getting better. But if you look at the Dodgers' third-order record, they just seem to improve by a little bit every year. And this is their best year yet. This is the Astros' best year yet. These teams are just total juggernauts. And uh, the Dodgers haven't tinkered a whole lot with their roster throughout the year except to promote rookies, some of whom are pretty impressive. The Astros, of course, added Jordan Alvarez, who was almost immediately like the best hitter in baseball, and then traded for Zach Greinke. So they've gotten better. They've got this dominant rotation without the terrible bullpen that the Nationals do. These are the two best offenses in baseball. It's like almost everything. They're first and second. Yeah, I I think if I'm not mistaken, first and second in in defensive efficiency as well. Yes, yes, they are. (laughs) They're, uh, I think, first and third in pitcher strikeout rate. The Astros, of course, are the first team ever to lead the league in pitcher strikeout rate and also have the lowest hitter strikeout rate. It's like you look at the leaderboard, they're just first and second in, in everything. Pitcher war, batter war. I think the Astros in the second half of the season are first in both of those things. So they've just been unstoppable. So I don't think there are any teams that are in their category. Now, if you look at the Fangraphs World Series odds, you put these two teams together and the field is still favored over the Astros and the Dodgers combined, just barely. And the Astros have significantly higher odds than the Dodgers. So obviously we saw really good Astros and Dodgers teams knocked off in the past few postseasons, and that could happen again. But I am sort of rooting, I guess, for a rematch just because these teams are so good. And it's not just that they're so good, but that they contain so many of the best players in baseball. It's like if you wanted to know which teams are most emblematic of 2019 or which teams were sort of the signature teams of the season, it would be them because the Astros have a a pretty good shot of being the first team ever to have the MVP Cy Young Award winner and Rookie of the Year Award winner on the same team, which is pretty unfair. Obviously, that requires Alex Bregman beating out Mike Trout. And then the Dodgers, I know that Ryu is a Cyan contender. He probably won't get it, but they probably have the MVP on their team too. So you've got MVP award winners. You've got Cy Young award winners. You've got like some of the best 25 and younger players on these two rosters. And you've also got the three most accomplished active pitchers in baseball in terms of career war with Verlander, Greinke, and Kershaw in this series. So You've got talent, you've got stars, you've got storylines, and you just have the best teams in baseball. So 
if you want to see the matchup of the best teams, then you have to be kind of pulling for the Astros and the Dodgers, assuming you're neutral and don't have another direct rooting interest in this postseason. Yeah, the Astros, it's funny because um, like to try to find something that you can say is a weakness on either team, generally people say, well, I guess maybe their bullpens aren't quite as good because uh, yeah. like the Dodgers didn't get that much out of Kenley Jansen this year relative to other Kenley Jansen years. And the Astros had, you know, uh, more blown saves than than you would have expected from an elite bullpen. But the Astros also have the second lowest bullpen ERA in baseball this year. And the Dodgers tied for the lowest in the National League. So even those are not weaknesses at all. Jeff Passan in in the playoff preview at ESPN talked to a bunch of scouts about various things on each team. And this sentence stuck stuck out to me, which was nearly every evaluator believes the Astros are going to win the World Series. And that surprised me because like all these things that you said, I've thought of the Astros and the Dodgers as being relatively co-equal, dominant, all-time great elite teams. And I have not really had in my head that one was better or worse than the other. And to obviously nearly every evaluator believing something doesn't mean that it's a wide margin. It mere, it merely means yeah. that they all see a at least a small margin that they agree on. So that isn't to say that it's lopsided in any way, but I was surprised to read that sentence. It gives you a sense that there is more distinction between uh, these two teams or more to distinguish between these two teams than than I've been considering it. And yeah. I guess my guess, I think a lot of conversations about the postseason come down to rotations. And if you look at the Astros who have Furlander and Cole, who are going to finish one, two in Cy Young and then got better with with Granky versus the Dodgers, who also have a very good rotation, who you wrote earlier this year at, at some point had one of the greatest starting pitching performances collectively that any team had ever had. But it's not quite as sort of unanimously heralded as the Astros top three are. And mm-hmm. there were some issues in September. Their starting rotation did not pitch as well coming down the stretch. And I think that we tend to focus on those rotations. It's just very easy to see the names that are going to be starting the first and second and third games and think that those are our destiny for those games. But I mean, even even there, the Dodgers are going to roll out Ryu, Kershaw and and Bueller, which there's just not that much between over the course of a season, you'd take the Astros. But in the course of a game, there's not really that much room there. The Fangrass playoff odds put the Astros' odds of winning the World Series as high as the Dodgers and the Yankees combined, which surprises me. It basically has the Astros as a 1-3 in shot to win the World Series. And I don't know if that's more because of the potential matchups they might face or the fact that they have home field advantage throughout the playoffs, which helps them. And obviously, I think they're a better team, but not a drastically better team. So that... I was taken aback a bit to see that difference there. But is this the time I guess we should talk about your Astros Dodgers article if we're going to? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You, uh, I, I did. <laughs> By the way, the Nationals bullpen, it looks like, had a, had a good last week. And so they are now only 10th worst uh-huh. since 1988, okay. although they are still fourth, it's like sixth worst since 2000. So 10th worst. 
1988. Uh Sorry, Wander Swero. (laughs) It was not that bad, actually. Wander Swero is one of the good ones. Yeah. Yeah, So this was, this, I I took a look at the concept of how a team does against 95 mile an hour or faster fastballs as whether it is a worthy playoff storyline or not. It comes up every, it seems like it comes up most years. There's a team that hit fastballs really well. And you'll see it cited at some point. You wrote a little bit about the fallacy of using that to uh, describe a team's strengths in 2014 because the Giants were being heralded as this team that had been more successful because they had something like the highest batting average on some number, some, some fastball number and higher. And as you pointed out, a batting average doesn't tell you everything that they did against that pitch. It only tells you what happened on the pitches that they specifically put into play. And you've got sample size issues and and so on. And so I uh, wanted to see whether this matters. And particularly, I wondered this year because the Dodgers were incredible at high velocity against high velocity fastballs. They were, you know, basically first, not just in their results, but also in their chase rates. So they they had very good uh, a very good plate discipline on higher fast higher velocity fastballs, and also their contact rates. Uh, so they were not just hitting the ball hard, but they were hitting the ball often uh, when it was that high. And then the Astros were near the bottom. And if you look specifically at how every team does against high velocity relative to how they do against everything else, if you represent that as kind of a ratio, then it's even more pronounced because the Astros obviously are very good at hitting almost everything. And so this then looks like a relative weakness, mm-hmm. um, whereas the Dodgers are were in fact even better in some ways at 95 plus than they were at fastballs below 95, which is crazy. They, I think at least when I wrote the article, I think they had a higher WOBA against higher velocity fastballs and they had the same chase rate against high velocity fastballs. So it's not just that they were relatively good, like Every team, for the most part, is it gets worse as fastballs get faster, and so you're just talking about who's the least worst, but the Dodgers were actually as good or better as fastballs got faster. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the playoffs, this is a much bigger storyline because the number of high-velocity fastballs they see more or less doubles. It goes from about... 12% of all pitches in the regular season to about 25% in the postseason, which means that you're playing, uh, you know, you're playing a sport that is not the same anymore. And mm-hmm. if you're, if you allow that one team is better at playing the postseason sport, the postseason style of sport than the regular season style of sport, then given 200 win teams, you might think that the 100 win team that is really good at postseason style baseball would be advantaged over the 100 win team that's not as good at postseason style baseball. So I looked at that to see whether the Astros should be worried. And I don't know, the answer is kind of mixed. This is a real, this does seem to be a real skill. The correlation from year to year for individual players is not nothing, although mostly, mostly for contact rates. If you look at their their WOBAs from year to year, the correlation is very, very, very weak. Mm-hmm. But their ability to make contact on high velocity relative to their ability to make contact on normal and low velocity does actually seem to repeat from year to year. And that is also true on a team-wide level, although it's a little harder to measure on a team-wide level because, of course, rosters change. And so you're not necessarily seeing the same team yeah. from year to year. But but it does seem to be real. Like if I tell you that the Dodgers are really good at this particular facet of the game, 
it's not probably just a flukish small sample thing or like cutting the splits until you find something that you can write an article about. It it does seem to be a true skill. And so the Dodgers do have that and maybe the Astros do have that weakness. But also, while the difference between 12 and 25% is seems pretty big, it is pretty big. There's not, I don't know. I, I'm not convinced that there, that this actually is that big of a factor. It's still only some number of pitches. You're still talking about a couple of percentage points of, of difference yeah. in productivity over, you know, maybe a dozen or two or, or so pitches a game. And so if you look at the teams that have been really good at this skill over the recent years, they've been only slightly more successful than you would have expected them to be. Very, very, very slightly more successful than they have. So I don't think that ultimately it is a big difference. I don't think that it means that the Astros, like if the Astros lose to the Yankees and their high velocity pitchers, I'm going to try not to say, ah, told you so, yeah. uh, because I don't think that it is the dominant force at work. I think the dominant force at work is still who's good at baseball. That yeah. is the overwhelming majority of uh, what is going to determine these series. But I think it's a not insubstantial difference. Uh, you know, it would not surprise me if it's a percentage or point or two difference that the Astros and Dodgers chances would move over the course of a month. Yeah, I could see that. And I remember doing an article, I think at Grantland about maybe it was the Royals or they were the hook for it, but about the idea that contact hitters fare better in the postseason, relatively speaking, because they're better against higher velocity, something like that. And there was some small effect, but I've basically given up on trying to find October advantages when it comes to like what works in the playoffs or what doesn't. I just think that all of the suggestions that this or that might be beneficial in October are just so small, I think, just because A, it's hard to do these studies because of the inherently small samples of the postseason, which are exacerbated by the fact that it's just hard to do the analysis unless you're like really careful about it because, as you said, the players who play in the postseason are not the players who were there all season long. So if you're doing studies, then you're probably just going to default to using the team's full season stats because it's so much easier. But often those are not the players who are playing in the postseason or who are not getting the most of the playing time. Like if you were to look at the Yankees, for instance, this year, their playoff roster is going to look pretty different from how their regular season roster did because of all the injuries and because they're going to be playing guys like Giancarlo Stanton and Luis Severino who were not there for almost the entire season. So that's going to be misleading and perhaps deceptive. And then you've just got the fact that October is different in certain ways that may matter and the ways in which it is different are changing so that now we can look and say, oh, yeah, relievers will pitch half of playoff innings. But that wasn't the case several years ago. I mean, I don't think there was that noticeable a difference between how teams managed in the playoffs and the regular season until fairly recently. So now do those previous decades of player performance actually predict anything in this environment where teams are treating things differently in the playoffs? And then you just have the fact that in the playoffs, most of these teams are pretty evenly matched. And you're talking about much smaller differences between teams than you are with the typical regular season matchup, or at least when these teams are playing other teams in the regular season. So you put all of that together, and it's just so hard to find anything meaningful. 
at most you're going to find something that's worth a percentage point here or there. And if you're intellectually honest about it, then you can't even declare victory or say, oh, I was wrong after the fact because all of this stuff could easily wash out in all of the randomness and noise that we can't avoid in the playoffs. So basically, I prefer to take the better team if I had to pick a team i'd pick the better team and of course the better team as currently constructed not necessarily as constructed all season long and that's about it and even then the difference is going to be 60 40 or something in in most cases at most so it's almost like you throw your hands up and you just kind of enjoy it for what it is instead of trying to probe the deeper mysteries of the playoffs because i don't know if they exist or if they're detectable or If they are detectable, whether they would even be all that significant. Yeah. I mean, certainly, especially when you're talking about the difference between the Astros and the Dodgers. uh, Yeah. Like you're you're basically just you're picking a side based on something emotional that you have not identified in yourself. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) There's, There's just there's nothing in seven games that is going to be revealed that shows that one of these teams actually had a fatal flaw uh, or cracked the code. Right, exactly. So you mentioned the two types of human personalities, the one that roots for the underdog and chaos and the one that roots for the best team to, to win because they're the best team. Is there place in this world for the compromise position of rooting for the Twins and the Braves? <laughs> well, if you're not a Twins and Braves fan, obviously people make their decisions based on all sorts of things if they don't have a direct rooting interest. Maybe they have a favorite player, or there's some personable players on a certain team, or players they don't like on another team, or maybe they just like the uniforms, or they like the radio broadcasters and they want to listen to them more. I don't know. Or maybe they stop paying attention entirely once their own team is out of it, which certainly happens too. So I don't know if there's a right way to pick. I think you can kind of get caught up in a team that is succeeding, like is on a really great run that is knocking off higher seeded opponents or more favored opponents. Then it's like you want to ride that run along with them. I think Twins and the Braves, I guess the best case for the Braves maybe would be that you get Acuna and you get Albies and you get Soroka and that's a a collection of 22 and under guys who have had seasons all on the same team that I don't think any team has ever had. So if you want to see Acuna, who's like the, he's like Mike Trout light, I guess. And if we can't see Trout in the playoffs, then Acuna gives you that same sort of array of every skill And, you know, he'll get that postseason stage that Trout is not getting. So they're fun in that sense. They made some smart one-year deals for Josh Donaldson and Dallas Keuchel, and those paid off. And I guess that would be the case for them. And as for the Twins, I think the Twins are a lot of fun, obviously. They ended up with the home run record, edging out the Yankees by one. They are the surprise team of 2019. They have a lot of great homegrown talent. They have made a lot of their players a lot better. They have a a lot of players from other countries who are performing well. So it's sort of a diverse roster. I guess those would be the cases for them. They have old fun guys like Nelson Cruz and they have young fun guys who are homegrown and have really excelled this year. So uh, there's both fun teams, both good to root for, but 
they are kind of the middle ground, I guess, where they're not the most talented teams and they're not the let's root for randomness and chaos team. Yeah, the the Braves are a good team for Braves are a good team if you're rooting for star power, like for just like the top of the roster. The, right. the the Astros and the Dodgers and also the Yankees are extraordinary for their depth. I mean, also for their stars, but yeah. their depth is is outrageous. I mean, I just don't feel like anybody was building teams like these before five or ten years ago, where you have like. 29 players who could start on a on a 500 team the braves are very different so the braves top four players are all in the top 35 for war uh Mm -hmm. this year and their next best player is matt joyce who had (laughs) 238 plate appearances this year started eight games through the first half like he was a pinch hitter exclusively pretty much through the first half he uh did not crack one war and he is 233rd. So they go, they go, oh, 12. They're, Josh Donaldson is 12th. Acuna is 17th. Albies is 24th. Freeman is 35th. And then you have 220, 233rd with Matt Joyce, 238, Dansby Swanson. So so that is like... Soroka, you're talking position players. I'm talking position players. Yeah. And so yeah. the Braves are like, they are definitely a team that you want to watch every every other inning yeah <laughs> and so uh there's something fun about that i mean that collection of uh, when I, I remember like uh around 1992 or so it felt like there were a lot of baseball cards that were like uh they would be kind of team team themed cards and they would show you like the the grouping of three or four players that that were like the best on the team and then they'd have some like nickname for the the four or whatever (laughs) and these four players are maybe the best four players that any team has the best Mm -hmm. combination of four players i don't know you've got maybe bregman springer altuve alvarez is probably better than that yeah and brantley's up there but that's a fun top four and then it falls off but who cares they're a really good team Mm -hmm. the twins I just I I just feel so bad for the Twins. The Twins won 101, is 101 yep. games mm-hmm. and they could very 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 plausibly not have home field advantage in any round <laughs> of the playoffs. Yeah. Baseball Prospectus by the way has something called the visual depth charts which just show the wins above replacement player produced at every position for every team. And the Astros, Dodgers, and Twins are the three teams that are above average at every single position. Although, obviously, the the Twins do not have the pitching staffs that the Astros and the Dodgers do. The, so the crazy thing, though, is that the Twins pitching staff is has been, at least it was, way better than you think it was. That Way better than you even think it is, probably. Like, they <laughs> had, they were sixth in baseball in ERA Plus this year. They're definitely behind the 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 top four in the American or the top three in the American League, but they were ahead of, I mean, like when I was trying to rank the postseason pitching staffs, I kept on wanting to drag the twins down because of the, the, the names and because it doesn't seem like there's anybody that you really want to throw out on the mound for a postseason game, but they were really good this year. They, their pitching staff was good. They're, they've got three or four pretty dominant relievers or like somewhere between pretty dominant and super dominant relievers. And I don't quite know how to explain how their pitching staff's performance was as good as it was this year, even looking at it. Like, like if you look at the page, and it still doesn't even look that good, but <laughs> their pitching staff was apparently pretty good this year. 
<laughs> good analysis. <laughs> They've been worse in the second half, right? Like they had guys who started out really well, like Martin Perez and Jake Kyle Odorizzi. Gibson. Yeah, and then Pineda's gone. Yeah, so, the, that's true. Pineda's gone. The, but the bullpen, I think, was was much better in the second half. If I'm yeah, not mistaken, they, they got some reinforcements and guys like Gratterol came in. So all right, so that's s- true. so s- first half bullpen, for, first half starting. Rotation ERA was three seven. Second half was four seven. So that is a big a big difference. Bullpen went from four three in the first half to four point oh in the second half. So yes, second half was worse. Yeah, and there are a lot of good defenses, by the way, in these playoffs that we maybe underrate. We mentioned the Astros and the Dodgers, who, by the way, it's hard to know even like why their defense is so good because they do everything so well that their pitchers have allowed lower quality of contact than any other team so it's partly that it's just easier fielding opportunities it's partly that they shift more than every other team the Astros and the Dodgers have shifted on more than half of all pitches and even if you account for the positioning they still have like the first and fourth best fielders or something in baseball so it's kind of just an all fronts attack they will not allow you to make contact if you do make contact it's weak contact and then they will have someone standing where the contact goes so it's just sort of impossible but there are also other really good defenses in this postseason field that i think we tend to overlook a little bit because we talk so much on about the pitchers and the hitters and defense is always kind of the thing that gets overlooked a little bit but obviously the A's have a great defense and the Cardinals have an excellent defense and the Rays have a, a really good defense so there are other teams that do those things well too but I don't know that the uh, the Twins or, or the Braves are in that category. So yeah, the, the Twins are, I guess the case for them just as a rooting interest would be that they're just one of the most surprising and fun teams of 2019. And I guess it would be nice for them not to get dominated by the Yankees again because they've been through enough of that. Well, I just like home runs. You know me. I love home runs. I want all the home runs. Nothing <laughs> yeah. nothing like a home run era for me. So I want the Twins to win so that I can see seven players homer in a 14 to 7 win. Yes. Well, you were certainly see that because the Yankees are playing the Twins. There are going to be a ton of dingers. The Astros and the Dodgers, by the way, were not far behind those two teams either. So they do that well too. I think the Astros and the Dodgers both broke the previous all-time high single season record for home runs so we'd be paying more attention to that if not for the twins and the yankees being even higher but yeah we haven't talked about the yankees that much and it's hard to know how good they are like obviously very good but they had such a strange season in that they had so many injuries and a record number of players going on the injured list and so It's hard to assess their true talent with the players that they actually have available to them right now. On the other hand, one of the things that kept them in the race all year, partly it was just the incredible depth and being able to slot in all of these guys who were better than most other teams' starters somehow, even when their starters went down. It was also that they led the majors in cluster luck, so they were a bit fortunate in the results of their run scored and allowed, and that kind of made up for some of the terrible injury misfortune that they had. So they're obviously really good. They've got a very good bullpen. 
Although maybe you would have imagined it being even better coming into the year because you would have thought Chad Green would have been better than he was. And Betances, you would have thought that was kind of a a tough one for him to come back and look good in one appearance and then be gone again because it could have just been an unbelievable bullpen. But it's still a really good one. And getting Severino back as good as he's looked in September, that's obviously a great addition they're without Domingo Herman for the playoffs, of course, and they've got Paxton and, and Tanaka and Sabathia to go with Severino. So it's it's not a strong rotation, but it sounds like they are going to really push the boundaries of playoff managing and pitcher usage. So I don't know what their reliever usage percentage will end up, but it sounds like it could be. I don't know, 60%, 70%. It seems like nothing's really out of reach for what they have in mind. Yeah. Yeah. In the playoff preview that I mentioned, uh, Passon has a scout uh, who says that if any team's going to beat the Astros in the American League, it's the A's, uh, not the Yankees. So the A's have a better chance than the Yankees. And then another scout, maybe a different scout, I don't know, then talks about how like it's how the a- the Yankees are like, well, I'll just read the whole thing. For all the Yankees' regular season excellence and perseverance, scouts who've seen them recently believe they're vulnerable. Quote, they are very beatable, one scout said. Very beatable. (laughs) I say this with all due respect to the guys they have injured. They have injured. You can pitch to a lot of their guys. I was shocked at how much you can pick to DJ LeMahieu. Judge and Glaber, you can get both of those guys out. And Carnacion, more of a mistake guy. And then Jeff interjects, hold on, pitch to LeMahieu, who's batting 331 and should get down ballot MVP votes. Quote, if you jam him inside and play him to pole, another scout, a different scout, another scout concurred, he'll get himself out. Man, the rest of the league is so bad at baseball. Sounds easy. Had him all year. Had him all year and nobody even tried this. Quote, uh, and then Jeff, another scout, slightly more sanguine take. Quote, they have a great bullpen, and then he followed, and they're going to get to it early. I think that could be a problem. So that's a um, that's a very that's a very pessimistic uh, outlook on a team that won 103 games. Yep. I think that it's somewhat misleading to say, well, and now they've got all their guys healthy because the players, the subs, the players who right. were playing outperformed <laughs> the projections for the players who were supposed to be healthy yeah so i don't think it's like i i'm not i'm not saying and now they're even better but i mean this is an extraordinary team and if you just go rewind six months ago we already thought they were an extraordinary team we already had them in the same conversation more or less as the astros and the dodgers they had had remarkable third order winning percentages the previous two years they were young and seemingly on the upswing um and then you you add in like that like to that roster, you now have DJ LeMahieu, who is, like it says, an MVP candidate. And you have Gio Urshela, who I don't know. I don't know what you think of him, but he played an entire year in the majors as like a, at a star level. Yep. Um, and you have, other than Batances, you have that bullpen made it to the postseason healthy and pitching extremely well. And now you have the rotation. Did, did you know the Yankees rotation had the, the best stats in baseball in September? I did not. Um, there, I, I mean, I, I was trying to make this case in the summer, but the, at the trade deadline, because just because you have a starting rotation that has struggled doesn't mean that they're going to continue to struggle. These were players who had uh, resumes of excellence, of at least very good pitching. And with Severino coming back, you would, you know, have a rotation 
at the time we didn't know that Herman would would be suspended but you had Paxton and Tanaka and Severino which is perfectly fine on paper it's as good as a you know a typical postseason roster and now all of those pitchers are pitching extremely well and so I don't know I mean I think that there's a discussion about how great the Astros and Dodgers are and how historic they are that doesn't necessarily have to turn into and here's why the Yankees are beatable yeah I think the Yankees are also one of the best teams that we've seen this century and mm-hmm. again the, the the margin between them and the Astros over the course of an entire season was three games so over the course of seven seven games it's just not going to be apparent it's not going right. to show up yeah all right well I guess we've talked about all the teams <laughs> is there anything else we have to say about this no okay so we will probably reconvene next after the wildcard games, I suppose. And so we'll talk about those and maybe do some emails and maybe talk some more about the division series once we know those matchups. I would say this is a pretty fun field on the whole. And the upside of the fact that this was such an extreme season for the regular season, which maybe led to more non-competitive games and teams with lower playoff odds playing a lot of games but the upside is that we get these really great teams in the playoffs and maybe that's sort of deceptive because part of the reason we have teams with 107 wins and 106 wins and 103 wins and 101 wins is that you also had teams with you know very few wins and those teams are not going to be playing now so I don't know how much that inflates the win totals and our perceptions of these teams quality but I think it's more than that. I think these really are just sort of super teams. These top teams, they're probably the best baseball teams we've seen or very close to it. And I hope that some of them go toe to toe. Yeah. And I I include the Yankees in that. Uh Uh-huh. All right. So looking forward to it. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you do sign up now, not only will you help us keep the podcast going, but you will get yourself access to some perks, including a couple of playoff live streams we will be doing in October. Dates to be announced, but you've got to get in at the $10 level or above to get access to those live streams. The following five listeners have already pledged their support. Colin O'Reilly, Phil Thomas... Francisco Dominguez, Sam Raker, and William Marshall. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. It's a great month to be in there as well. There's usually a game thread for every playoff game. People are talking in there constantly at all hours of the day and night. It's a fun place to hang out and watch the game. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. If you are a supporter, thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Your ratings and reviews are appreciated for the book as well. So enjoy the wildcard games, and we will be back to discuss them soon. And the continents are bleed together Wooden boys and girls together everywhere